Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As human beings, we spend a great deal of our lives interacting with others. God created us to be in relationships, not only with Him, but also with our fellow creatures. Some of these relationships are individual connections like marriage or parenting or friendships. Other relationships connect us to groups or organizations which are far more complex, such as classes or companies, teams or clubs, government or congregations. Whenever two or more individuals are somehow connected, the dynamics of these relationships mean that those involved are going to have some sort of an influence on one another. In some situations, this influence is rather passive. A a person sees or hears what another is doing and responds in some way without the doer consciously intending to generate that influence. In other cases, there is a deliberate attempt on the part of one individual to cause another individual or a group to respond in some way. Sciences such as psychology and sociology and anthropology are based in large part upon such principles and realities. Many Christians in contemporary America, particularly those of of church bodies who do not have a good grasp of the doctrine of the two kingdoms, often lament the fact that the the church as an institution and biblically-based Christian values no longer seem to carry the influence upon our society that they once did. To be sure, our, our lives as Christians would be far easier if the majority shared our views and our values instead of rejecting them. And if we were to influence them more than we find ourselves and our children influenced by them. Yet influence is a, is a funny thing, isn't it? Even when we attempt to exercise influence in a biblically sound and a God-pleasing way, there are some risks to our own spiritual health. Some even go so far as to adopt the morally indefensible stance that the end justifies the means. And they find themselves grossly violating God's law and their their own spirit-formed consciences to pursue what would otherwise be a, a noble objective. And even if we don't go that far, exercising influence can lead us into using worldly and sinful techniques that call for pressure and deceit and even manipulation. I remember that during my 20 years in a, in a prior career, I would often come across uh, offers for various self-improvement programs, books or audio training tools or seminars. Perhaps some of you have seen them too. Many of these promise to give the reader or the hearer some sort of secret advantage over others in achieving success. Usually these supposed advantages are are techniques of presenting oneself or presenting one's ideas in such a way as to influence others to accept or to like or to hire or to promote or to buy something. Some of these even go so far as to claim that the ideas and the techniques they are suggesting are Christian in nature, or at least that the author or presenter is a Christian. 
In most cases, we should probably distance ourselves fast and far as possible from these sorts of methods and approaches toward influencing others. Many of these are found to be based on the same sort of logic and reasoning as the suggestions that once came to our ancestors after they heard the question, did God really say? They recommend flattery of others, only telling them the positive aspects or possibilities of the outcome, minimizing or ignoring the negative, using words that will evoke a positive emotional response. Sadly, such techniques have made their way sometimes from the secular world into the church. And when they do, the church's reliance on the Holy Spirit's sure and certain promise to work through word and sacrament to grant faith and to sustain faith and to guide the Christian life often shrinks or can even disappear. We have to be aware of these dangers and we have to be careful not to let them creep unchallenged into our midst either. For example, it is not without a great deal of prayer and care that Pastor Knuckles and I and the the elders of the congregation and other leaders at St. Paul bring before you matters such as worship attendance, participation in congregational life and in service, and yes, as you heard again this morning, financial support. We ask one another to review each other's words and to give us feedback. We want to make sure that what we communicate to you about the needs of the congregation and more importantly about your needs to be here in God's house, to be blessed and to give and to serve, are founded upon law and gospel. We want you to be spirit-led to seek to receive the gifts He gives to bless us and to bless others with them as well and not to be guilt-driven, not to be manipulated. The Lord will judge how well we have met these hopes. And may He have mercy on us all. If it is only with the greatest caution and trembling that Christians ought to seek to constructively influence and not to manipulate the will of fellow Christians and the actions of the world around them, how much more fearful ought we be about any attempts to manipulate Almighty God? At the beginning of today's Gospel lesson, Jesus tells His disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These verses cause a variety of reactions in believer and unbeliever alike. For the unbeliever who is a staunch atheist, they're complete foolishness. Asking some imaginary being for anything is ridiculous, he thinks. If you want something, you just ask the person who has it, or you you work to get it with your own efforts and using your own resources. To an unbeliever who is at least open to the idea of a divine being, such words about Christianity can make it seem much more attractive even though his motives in considering Christianity are wrong. That's pretty cool, this sort of unbeliever thinks. You mean, if if I become a Christian, I'll get everything I want? I can ask for riches or for health or for intelligence or the sort of relationships that I want? And this Jesus guy will fulfill my every wish and my wildest dreams? Where do I sign up? 
to the believer who has an undeveloped or an underdeveloped sort of faith, with limited understanding of the nature and the workings of God, this statement can have a, a similar effect. This sort of believer trusts in God for his salvation through the forgiveness of his sins for the sake of Christ and his suffering on the cross. He believes in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Yet he really hasn't fully surrendered his life into God's hands. This sort of believer doesn't fully trust yet that God works through creation and works through the vocations of himself and others to provide everything that he needs for this body and life, as well as what others need and what the church needs as well. He doesn't buy into Jesus' words elsewhere about not worrying about food or about clothing or about the other things of this life. And he forgets the Savior's gentle chiding about, oh, you of little faith. And so when this sort of believer prays, he forgets that his Heavenly Father knows all of his needs already and forgets that God's will is done even without our prayers. This immature believer becomes convinced by his own weakness and by the temptations of the devil and the world around him that it's his responsibility to figure out everything that he needs and wants and that he must ask it of God in just the right words at just the right time and in just the right place. The danger of this approach to prayer, of course, is that while we know what we want, or at least we think we do, only God knows what we truly need. When this Christian's desires and expectations aren't met in a timely fashion, it can lead to frustration, fear, anger, and despair. Isn't God listening? Is He angry with me over something? Did I ask Him in the, in the right way, long enough, sincerely enough, often enough? I've been asking in Jesus' name, why isn't He giving it to me? This prayer stuff isn't working. What's wrong with my prayers? What's wrong with God? The Bible is, after all, full of directives to pray. There are many, many examples of faithful believers praying to God and receiving not only what they ask for and what they need, but blessings far above and beyond them. And so when our prayers don't seem to generate similar outcomes, there's a sinful tendency in us to begin to question prayer's value and effectiveness. And in doing that, we undermine the very basis of prayer, faith. You see, Jesus knows that we will often ask for the wrong things when we pray. He knows that we will sometimes ask for good things, but with the wrong motives. He knows that we will frequently ask for the right things and even with the right motives, but that sometimes we won't really fully trust that God would or could provide or satisfy them. He therefore gave His disciples instructions to pray in My name. Now, praying in Jesus, names means, in Jesus' name means a lot more than simply mouthing those words, in Jesus' name we pray, at the end of our prayers. Properly speaking, to do something in another's name is to take on an identity and a responsibility to represent them truly and faithfully. It's to assume a status of not looking out for your own desires, but to surrender yourself and your wishes to the interest of another, 
like an attorney or an accountant or a diplomat is to do when representing someone else. Yet even as Christ's own through baptism and faith, we cannot do this fully or consistently. Our prayers, influenced as they are by our sinful flesh, may be asked with mouths that voice Christ's name, but not with hearts that fully know and trust Him. For this reason, we must realize that we cannot rightly pray on our own, and that we ought not expect or insist that God will give us what we think we are asking for in our conscious thoughts. But we can be confident that God does give us what He knows is truly right for us, and what our innermost beings truly desire in Him. It's just that our minds and our bodies seek other things because they are weak. How thankful we can be that God does not abandon us in this weakness, but actually aids us in overcoming it. As St. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's difficult to comprehend the profoundness of that explanation and just how beautifully it meshes with Jesus' statement in the Gospel lesson today. Jesus is telling His disciples that He is about to leave them to return to the Father, but He had just told them previously that He will send them His Spirit. Jesus tells them to pray and to ask for anything in His name, but yet He knows that we cannot pray as we ought. Jesus knows that in the emptiness of the world's attractions, we won't always ask for the right things or use the right words, but He has filled us with the Holy Spirit who expresses the will of God, expresses it silently even, or in the groanings too deep for words. Baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, it is our gospel privilege as His brothers and sisters to pray to our Heavenly Father, asking Him to fulfill all of our prayers in Jesus' name. Yet even when the prayers of our minds and our mouths are as scattered as far from Jesus as were the disciples when they abandoned Him to the world, the Spirit still prays within us. The Spirit sustains us and gives us the faith to trust in God's perfect will, even when we aren't getting what we want or we expect, when and how we want it. The Spirit guides us to recognize that our prayers don't manipulate God to see and to do things our way. Rather, the Spirit moves us and shapes us to be conformed to God's will so that what we ask for, consciously or not, is more fully conformed and compliant with the path that He has chosen for us. Your privilege and your ability to pray to the Father in a God-pleasing way is all part of a great exchange, an inexplicable redemption. For you to be able to pray to the Father in Jesus' name is completely wrapped up in the reality of everything that Jesus has already accomplished for you in your name, resisting all of the temptations of the devil and the world, perfectly pleasing His Father by living a sinless life in human flesh, obediently suffering torture, rejection, 
and an undeserved death at the hands of sinners like us. To be sure, Jesus did all these things as God made flesh, according to the will of God and in the name of God. But in putting Himself in your place, Jesus did all of these things in your name too. Doing those tasks that were rightfully expected of you by God. Suffering all of those things that should have justly had your name written all over them. The sign on that cross read, Jesus of Nazareth. But it could have been, it should have been, your name there instead. All this He did, and all of this He has told you, so that in Him you may have peace. In this world you will indeed have trouble, including trouble praying and trouble trusting that your prayers are heard and answered. But by His death and His resurrection, He has overcome the world once and for all, including all of the worldliness in you that would lead you to unworthy prayers. For that great gift of sacrifice, we bless and we praise Him, offering prayers to the Father through the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen.